Hey, I'd like to thank Pastor Todd for preaching last week. That's where you clap. It was fantastic. I appreciated the message and, and uh, the scripture reminding us of the unity we have in Christ. Uh, so I appreciate Todd preaching here last week, as I'm sure the kids in our youth ministry appreciate that on a weekly basis. This week we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. Maybe I made mention of that. There was a guy, he owned seven restaurants, uh, Mr. Choi. Seven restaurants. It seems like a lot of restaurants to own. But un- you may not know this about Mr. Choi, because you don't know who that is probably. And uh, I don't know him either, other than reading a little bit about his life story. But he was one of the pioneers and first guys to really put together gourmet food trucks. One of the leaders and innovators in what is now sort of commonplace. And uh, the reason he owned seven restaurants is because he got fired. He got fired and lost everything. Nearly went bankrupt, couldn't figure out what to do. And so he started cooking food. And now years later, coming out of ruin, he owns seven restaurants and is a pioneer in his industry, from ruined to restored, financially anyway. I don't know anything about his spiritual condition. And we're going to read a little bit about that in the life of the Apostle Paul today. So the title of the message today is, thinking of the Apostle Paul, is Ruined by Jesus. Ruined by Jesus. And Paul was, in fact, ruined by Jesus. And we sort of hope in the back of our minds that the result of him being ruined by Jesus is significant wealth and comfort and ease. Unfortunately, it just resulted in him eventually being martyred. I don't want to give away the end of the story, but that's how it ends. He's ruined by Jesus, but he finds something much better than even this life could have to offer. So I want to look a little bit at his testimony here in Ephesians chapter 3 and understand what happened in his life when he was ruined by Christ and the kind of changes that resulted from that and have us consider perhaps whether or not we ought to be seeking these same kind of things in our life. Let me read again verse 1, Ephesians 3 verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Yeah, we're going to stop there. It's the middle of a sentence. I realize that. But generally, Paul's sentences are so long, you're generally stopping in the middle of a sentence. Paul is starting to pray here. If you scan in your Bible down to verse 14, you'll see he picks that up again. He says, for this reason, and then he prays for them. He writes a prayer down for the people of Ephesus. So he did here at Ephesians 3.1 what we often do. You sit down to pray and you think of something. He said, for this reason, I, Paul, and he's getting ready to say a prayer for them. He goes, wait a minute. I need you to understand why I'm going to pray the way I'm going to pray for you. Because down in Ephesians, the end of chapter 3, he prays this way. I pray you would know the depth of Christ's love. He wants them to experience the depth and immensity of the love of Christ. And here at the beginning of Ephesians 3, he says, you know, I better tell them why I think this. And so he's going to explain why he's going to pray the way that he prays. So he says this, For this reason I, Paul, a what? A prisoner. Where is he writing from? It's an easy one, not a trick question. He's writing from prison. Paul is a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. So let me put it this way. Paul was ruined by Jesus. In verse 1, he made this change in his ruin. He went from prison filler to prison dweller. 
Do you know something of the story of Paul's life? Look with me at Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, same guy, different name. A lot of reasons why he might have a different name. I think the simplest is always the best, Occam's razor, as it were. Saul is how the Hebrews would say his name, and Paul is how the Greeks would say his name. But Saul, still breathing threats and murders, murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Okay, Saul, not a Christian, a little bit upset at the Christians, in fact, breathing out threats and murder, he goes to the high priest, verse 2 of Acts 9. He asked the priest for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so if he found anyone belonging to the way, what does he mean by the way? John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, so the way is one of the ways they describe Christians. If he found any Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Paul, the non-believing Pharisee, high-ranking official, goes to the high priest, says, give me authority to go to the synagogues in Damascus and arrest the Christians. Because we don't like the Christians. And Paul had the authority to arrest the Christians because the religious authorities at that time and in that place even had political and civic authority. Why would Paul want to arrest Christians? He's religious. Christians are religious. What's his beef? Does that seem a little, get off your high horse, man. Can't we live in the same room? No. Paul, as a Pharisee, as an ethnic Jew, wanted to defend the, the way in which you get to God, according to his understanding, was by the law through Israel. How do you become a, a child of God? Become a child of Israel. How do you become a child of Israel if you're a Gentile? You obey the law and become Jewish through a rite and ritual that they would put in place. And he says, no, 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 there's no other way to God except to the people of God. And if you're going to try and make a way to God besides the people of God and the law of God, I am going to throw you in jail. And that's what he was seeking to do. You would say, Paul, do you think the people who believe in God should have unity together? What do you think he would say? Absolutely. How do you maintain unity, Paul? You kick out the people who don't follow the rules. I know this is law, isn't it? How do you maintain unity among those who are going to seek to know God through law obedience? We have unity because the people who don't obey, we get rid of. We have unity because you either obey the law to be in or you disobey the law and you are out. You either are Jewish to be in or you are not Jewish and you are out. This was his understanding of how it worked. And he felt like it was fantastic. Everybody was unified. The law only creates unity among people if that unity is achieved by power. How does the law achieve unity? The people in charge make people sure the people not in charge are behaving, and when they're not behaving, they're kicked out. So under a law system, a code system, unity is actually a, a bully club to get people to behave. To belong, you must behave. When you show up for a religious exercise, religious gathering, how do you know you belong? Because you have behaved. What if you haven't behaved? Don't tell anybody, because then you won't belong. Ask Aiken. Google it. 
Do I have to explain Achan? Achan is the guy in Jericho. He kept a wedge of gold in the fancy clothes, and he buried it in his tent. And they said, did you steal anything? He said, no, because he's a good Christian. Sin at home, not in church, right? He got found out, by the way. So if we're going to seek unity together, as Todd shared with us last week, and we're going to do so by obedience to some kind of law code, what that is going to result in Unity achieved by the exertion of power. To belong, you must behave, and the best behaved are the best people. So to belong, you must behave, even if you belong. And everybody's in the room. We all belong, y'all. Yep, rule followers, good. Even for the belongers, there's a ranking system. Amongst those who are seeking to obey, there are those who are obeying much better. Paul was a Pharisee. He was the ninja of obedience. How is that a good illustration? I have no idea why, but that's what I thought of. He was the ninja. We all know ninjas are really good at whatever they do. So if behavior is the same as unity, follow me here. This is what Paul was thinking, to maintain the unity of the, of the faith, the unity of the people of God. Therefore, in order to, for there to be unity, we must all behave. So therefore, what is our focus on? On the misbehaviors, what was he spending all his time doing? Getting letters from the high priest to arrest people and fill prisons. So our focus is on the misbehaviors. So actually, what results in when a a body of people seeking to know God are characterized by unity, which is defined by behaving, the whole focus is actually ends up being on the misbehaviors and excluding those who don't fit. So let me reword this. I'm building to a point eventually. Unity based on exclusion or unity based on following a law code is not unity. It is elitism, and it is destructive, and God hates it. I don't know how to say that more strongly. More stronger? Unity based on behavior, who's, obeying, who's following the rules, is unity that's based on exclusion, which is also unity that is based on elitism, who's the best of the best, God hates that. Funny story about this, a singer named Paul McCartney. Familiar with this gentleman? He was a part of a band named after an insect. Anyway, several years ago after the Grammys, I don't know if you know what the Grammys are, it's a big award show, it's generally on television, they celebrate... Musicians, recording artists, it's a big night, big fancy shindig. And they have these after parties for the famous and rich people who are in the music industry, and that's fantastic. And so Paul McCartney leaves the Grammy Awards, and he goes to a a Grammy party that's being held uh, by a a recording artist. He knocks on the door, and the guy opens it. Hey, want to come to the party? Here's a Grammy party. You're not on the list. Uh, And Paul Paul McCartney... Generally, don't have to be on lists. (laughs) I generally go wherever I want. Never heard of you. So he tried three times to get access to this musician's party and finally left and went to a different party. He says, I don't know how VIP you have to be to get into that party, but if Paul McCartney can, there must not be anybody there. And we think it's silly. But that's how these kinds of parties work. The, the hobnobbers and the important and the powerful get into these things. And, of course, it's a little bit funny when the system gets messed up. It's not funny in the church. 
It's not funny in the body of Christ. There is no hobnobbing. There is no elitism. There is no exclusion. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 1. It's actually somewhat stunning to know he went from filling prisons with Christians who would celebrate their union with Gentiles to this. I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of who? You Gentiles. I gladly sit in prison today because of my ministry to the Gentiles. I gladly sit in prison today because I want to explain with my life that anyone who is in Christ is in. There is no separation. Paul is now in prison because of the ministry of the gospel which changed his heart, which says we don't get in by behaving, we get in by trusting, by trusting in Jesus Christ himself. And the Jews don't want the Gentiles in, not because they hate Gentiles per se, but they want to control access to God himself. And Paul is saying this, union with God through the good news of the gospel, union with God through the good news of the gospel with my fellow Gentile believers is worth prison. Jesus ruined Paul because he would rather sit in prison and have union with his fellow non-behaving Gentiles than to be out of prison spending his time with the goody-two-shoes Jews. That rhymed, it didn't mean to, it just happened. The gospel, the good news of the gospel, that Jesus saves sinners, that Jesus dies on the cross and we receive righteousness by trusting in him alone, it destroys the I'm better or they're worse argument. It destroys that argument. Union in Christ is good and bad are in Christ. There is no elite. There is no good one. There is no bad one. There is in Christ and therefore righteous in Christ. If you claim the name of Christ and you say, you know, I'm a Christian, you have two views of people you can have. I'm going to give them to you. Are you ready? If two views of people you can have. If they're in Christ, they're righteous. How righteous are they? As righteous as Jesus. So you got two views on people. First view is if they're a Christian, they're as righteous as Jesus. What's the other person you might know? Not in Christ. So what's your view on them? Tell them about Jesus. Those are your two options. There are no other options for Christians. If they're in Christ, they're righteous. As Jesus. That's pretty righteous. If they're not in Christ, what difference does it make? They need me to tell them about Jesus. So that what? They can be as righteous as Jesus. They're your two options. When Paul found Christ, it ruined him because those were not on his options. His options were knowing God as a Jew and trying to be better than all the other ones who say they know God. Or all the other dirtbags. Christians, we don't have those options. You might know a Christian in your life who is a real dirtbag. I know you would never say it that way. You would think it, but you would never say it. And even in, in your mind right now, you're denying it. What are your two options? How righteous are they? As righteous as Jesus. But you don't know they're a dirtbag. Righteous dirtbag. Jesus is funny that way. How do you do that? Ask him. You can take it up with him. Well, you know, their life is really cattywampus. I don't even think they're a Christian. Fantastic. Tell them about Jesus. Wait, I want, you don't understand. I know what you're thinking. I want to hold resentment and a grudge. I know you do. Stop it. 
You don't get to. In Christ, don't mean to beat a dead horse. There's Christian, righteous as Jesus, which is, means they're just as righteous as you. And you say, but they're a real dirtbag. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a funny system. That really, really the awesome people are only as awesome as Jesus. And the real, real lamos, and I'm being facetious, sort of, they're also as righteous as Jesus. That's what the cross does. And what about the guys who aren't? Go tell them about Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if somebody that lame and that dirtbag-ish could also be righteous as Christ? Now we're getting to it. You're going, well, I don't know if that would be good. Yeah, I messed the whole thing up. And Paul was ruined by Jesus. He said, let's mess the whole thing up. From prison filler to prison dweller, I would rather be in union with the dirtbag Gentiles. You understand, of course, I'm not calling anybody a dirtbag. I mean, there's two guys, but they know who they are. (laughs) I'm trying to make a point. Paul says, I would rather be in union in Christ with Gentiles, those lousy, no-behaving guys. I'd rather be in prison to stand up for my union and connection in righteousness with my non-behaving Gentiles than spend a minute with the well-behaved Jews. He's not making an ethnic argument. He's making a righteousness argument. He says, Jesus broke these things down, and it ruined Paul. He spent his last days in prison, and he was glad to do so. Let me read verses 2 through 5 again as we keep moving along. Paul says this. Now, assuming, and by assuming, he's saying, I know that you have heard of the stewardship or ministry of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known, excuse me, to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So let's just refer back again to Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 4. He's going to Damascus, and he's going to arrest the Christians there. And this is verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Rise and enter the city, and I'm going to tell you what to do. Rise and enter the city, and I'm going to tell you what to do. So Paul says here, something has been made known to me by revelation. It's not innovative. It's not a new kind of religion. It's the culmination of what was going on in the Old Testament. It's the fulfillment of all of what's going on in the Old Testament, and nobody saw it coming. Nobody would have guessed it. When God was saying to the Jewish people, uh, sacrifice a lamb for your sins, nobody would have guessed. He was saying, because I'm going to sacrifice myself for your sins. Nobody, was, nobody knew this was going to happen the way it happened. And so Paul, by revelation from God, his eyes are opened, even though he becomes blind temporarily, to see, I see what happened here. Jesus is the sacrifice that fulfills all of the Old Testament. Jesus is the one who provides righteousness, not a particular people group, not a particular set of behaviors. So Paul all of a sudden realizes, wait, wait, I can just be righteous? In Christ? 
I, you mean it's just, it's just, it's all forgiven? Yeah. All of a sudden, the good news hits him that in Christ, he now receives everything he'd been working so hard to achieve and wasn't able to achieve it. Now, all of a sudden, all of his learning about the prophets and the people of Israel, it all makes sense because it was all fulfilled in Christ. And now, all of a sudden, his, the fact that he could never keep the law, he wouldn't tell anybody that, but the fact that in his heart he knew he couldn't keep it, he said, oh, I don't have to. Jesus fulfilled it. This all makes sense. So Paul was ruined. He went from religious power to gospel teller. Religious power to gospel teller. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. This is what he says in verse 12 of Acts chapter 9. If I can find it here. No, yeah. I should say, look at Acts 15, not Acts chapter 9. Later on, uh, some people, he would, Paul was doing ministry elsewhere, and some men came down from Judea. This is Acts 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. They came to a Gentile church, and they said, listen, we came from Judea, that is probably the area around Jerusalem, and said, listen, you guys are great. We're Christians, you're Christian. Fantastic. All the Christians in Jerusalem are getting circumcised, guys. And this really upset Paul. Why would this upset Paul? He's like, no, 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 that system's gone. We we don't have a behavior system, do a certain thing to be a Christian system. And this is what Paul says in verse 5 of Acts 15. I I, I misspoke. This is what else said, Acts 5, 15, 5. Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. After this, there was much debate because what was happening is the Christians were coming together and the Jewish Christians were coming together and the Jews says, hey, you're Christian, great. So were the Jews. So now let's obey the law together in Christ. Peter responds this way. This is Peter's response to this uh, religious control system that was being foisted onto the believers. Uh, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by obeying the law. Did you hear me misread it? Make sure you're awake. Stay with me. He cleansed the Gentiles' hearts by what? Faith. What does it mean when your heart is cleansed? What else is left to do? Nothing. You're clean. You're cleansed, he says. Now, therefore, this is what Paul says to those who would put religious systems in the life of believers. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to test to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Why are you calling the Christians to be well-behaved when all of our people, for all of history, the one thing they have been terrible at is being well-behaved? So now all of a sudden you're going to come in and say to the Gentiles, you better get your act together. I mean, it's laughable. Have you read the Old Testament? Not a well-behaved story of people. And Peter's saying, why are we putting God to the test to come to these folks and say, you've got to act a certain way? Otherwise, you're not in. 
Verse 12, here's their response. All the assembly fell silent. A trickle of sweat went down the back of the necks of some of those who would put rules in the life of other believers. My guess is all of a sudden for many of those, they would remember back to when they stood and looked at their Savior on the cross. Because some of them would have seen it. And they go, oh man, he did that. And I'm still trying to put rules on him. What am I doing? He did it. What's left to do? I've seen the cross. I've seen the empty tomb. And they fell silent. So Paul, one of the ways he was ruined by the gospel is he went from religious power, that is, seeking to control the lives of others by telling them how they're supposed to live, and instead he became a gospel teller. He would tell Christians over and over again, if you've read the Bible at all, Jesus loves you, he saved you, you're righteous. And he would tell non-believers over and over again, in order to receive righteousness, you need to trust in Christ. He went from religious power to gospel teller, even within the context of the church. Look at this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says this to the church in Corinth, Indeed, I consider that I'm not in the least inferior to the super apostles, that is, those who are coming in and being pretty awesome. Verse 6, Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. He comes to the Corinthian believers and he says this, I'm not coming to you with power. I'm not coming to you with influence. I'm not coming to you with uh, seven habits of highly effective people. He comes not able to speak, stumbling over his words. But the words that are coming out are, God loves you, and Christ died for you. Receive his righteousness. And he said, maybe you want the, the super elite uh, apostles who can come in and tell you uh, seven habits and uh, ten steps to a good marriage and whatever else you want from them. He says, I'm just going to tell you you're righteous in Christ. If you're not in Christ, I'm going to tell you how to be righteous in Christ. I'm going to stumble over my words, but you're gonna, the Holy Spirit is going to be used uh, to change your heart. Paul got into a serious habit of just telling people good news over and over and over again. A couple of us in the room have been Christians longer than 10 minutes. Has there ever been a point in your life, you don't have to raise your hand, where you said, you know, I'm good. I, I'm, I've got this whole I'm forgiven thing down. I'm fine. Is there ever a point in your life where you just, somebody tells you, hey, just wanted to remind you, you're, you're right in Christ. He loves you. Is there a time you say, yeah, no, I'm good with that. Kind of moved on. You know why you don't get tired of hearing that? Because you blew it on the way to church. There's a long line in the Dutch Bros. Then after you got out, you were running late, and there was a red light, and a red light, and a red light. Your dog messed on the carpet. I don't know. And then you get down to church, and you say, oh, great, we're going to get to ten lists of what good people do. I can't even get to church without blowing it. And Paul understood that. He said, we're in Christ. He made everything right for us. From religious power to gospel teller in weakness, not in control, not in power, he basically wanted to say the gospel is not religious influence, the gospel is not religious authority, the gospel is in fact what? Good news. Jesus loves sinners and made a way for them to be righteous. 
Paul says this over in Galatians chapter 1, verse 12. I did not receive it, that is good news, from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You have heard of how my former life of Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God and violently tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul said he was called out of Judaism to have union with the Gentiles in Christ and to call them to love Christ by faith and to receive righteousness by faith. He's basically saying this, I was ruined because my life before was power and control. And my life now is hanging out with poorly behaved people with no control over them whatsoever. And my ministry is a stewardship of telling them good news over and over and over again. Jesus was a revelation that changed everything about how he saw people and how he saw the ministry of Christ in his life. Here's the mystery he talks about over in Ephesians chapter 3. What is this mystery? The mystery is this. Salvation is from the people of Israel, but it's not only in the people of Israel. Salvation is through Christ alone that God saw fit to bring from Israel. So salvation we receive from the people of Israel, that is God saw fit to bring Christ, the Messiah, through the people of Israel, but we find salvation in Christ because Christ has fulfilled everything the people of Israel could not do. The people of Israel were not good at obeying the law. Agreed? Read six pages of the Bible, you'll figure that out if you don't believe me. How good was Jesus at obeying the law? Perfect. He obeyed every law precisely when it was intended to be obeyed and did not break one once. He did everything Israel couldn't do. He fulfilled everything God had called his people to do. And then dying on the cross, he became our redemption sacrifice. And so therefore, we, we have salvation from Israel in Christ, but not only in Israel. We don't have to become Jewish to become a Christian. When we set up barriers like this to pe keep people out, uh, it creates two kinds of people in the world around us. There are religious people, and there are rebellious people. And you're saying, well, I don't know if I'm religious or rebellious. Then you're rebellious. Because the religious people, <laughs> they know they're religious. What's worse, being religious or rebellious? I have an opinion on this, so I'm about to share it with you. Opinions are free. Religious people are worse. It's a bad thing to say in a church now that I'm thinking about it. Why are religious people worse? Worse. <clears throat> worse. A rebel says, I don't need God. He said, well, you need God to avoid hell. So be it. Do my thing. That's bad news. Religious people are worse. Religious people, we come to them and say, you need Christ to be righteous. You mean I'm pretty good. It's my way or the highway. In fact, I'm going to do everything I can to keep anybody from trying to find God in a way other than my way. See, rebellious people just reject God. Religious people reject God and try to take everybody to hell with them. That's exactly what Paul was doing. 
They say, listen, we need, the world needs to shape up and behave the way I think they need to behave. There was a guy named John Wycliffe. He felt that the Bible was the only authority of uh, people in terms of understanding and knowing God. Maybe you've heard of him. He was one of the first folks. This is a long time. He lived like 30 years ago. Um, No, long time. It's 1300s. Early 1300s for John Wycliffe. And uh, so what he decided to do, he said, you know what would be a great idea? Since the Bible is the only way for people to know God, I'm going to translate the Bible into English for English-speaking people. And so he did that. People got really upset. Uh, mostly the religious people, because there's nothing worse than informed Christians, because then they discover everything the church is doing is wrong. They would have martyred him, but he was rude enough to die before they had a chance to kill him. But somebody came after him, living somewhere else in his modern-day Czech Republic, He's a guy named Jan Hus. Jan Hus was influenced by Wycliffe. He said, you know what? This guy was on to something. People should read the Bible in their own language. And the authority of the person's life is God himself through the word of God himself. So I'm going to make sure everybody understands what, uh, how you understand a God is through his word and read the word on your own. The church didn't like this because the church was full of corruption. And they convicted John, Jan Hus of heresy. In his defense, this is the only thing he said. He said, listen, I will will gladly admit to everything you're saying. Gladly. Just open the Bible and show me where I'm wrong. They didn't. They burned him at the stake. That's where religious people, it's our way or the highway. Well, but the Bible says it this way. Burned at the stake. Now, nowadays, we don't burn people at the stake, but we look down on them, and we judge them, and we exclude them from our social circles and say, listen, you don't do things my way. So the church at that time was extremely uh, concerned uh, that they protect their interests and maintain the institution uh, of the church as it was at that time. Here's a question we need to ask ourselves as modern believers in the United States. Here's a question. Are you ready? Does Christianity need protecting? No, it doesn't. I think he's got it. Jesus, doing a pretty good job. 2,000 years, and this thing is still cruising along. In fact, the fact that the 20th century was the single most effective year for world missions on record, unbelievable, considering what happened in the Dark Ages. Does Christianity need protecting? No, it doesn't need protecting. Jesus, he got it. Does the world need to hear? Yes. When we spend our time as a body of believers exerting religious power to protect our interests and what we think must be, instead of being ruined by Christ and just saying, oh man, I just need to hear the good news, we get everything backwards. Paul was ruined by Christ. He no longer was going to spend his time protecting the religious institutions of Judaism or of the church in that time. As soon as Peter or James got sideways, Paul was all up in their face. He says, I'm not about religious power. I'm all about telling the people good news. Christ loves sinners and made a way for you to receive righteousness. The gospel destroys religious power. The gospel, the good news that Christ saves sinners, destroys religious power. Instead, what we have is union with one another in Christ in telling people this. Good news, everyone gets in in Christ. Everyone gets in in Christ. 
All right, what did we say? Ruined by Christ, ruined by Jesus from prison filler to prison dweller. Secondly, from religious power to gospel teller. And finally, verses 6 and 7, Ephesians chapter 3, if you want to turn there again, from Jewish protector to Gentile brother. This is what Paul says, Ephesians 3, 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Paul is saying this, I was given a ministry of the good news of the gospel uh, to the Gentiles, and that's the mystery. The Gentiles are in, in, in Christ. Look with me over at Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 and beginning in verse 48. This is the end of a sermon given by a guy named Stephen. Stephen is ending his sermon to a group of very religious individuals. He's ending his sermon with this in Acts chapter 7, verse 48. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. Oops. He just told a group of Jews he's not in your temple. I mean, it looks nice. He's not there. God does not dwell in temple made by human hands. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my... My footstool, God says. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. Which of the fathers did your, uh, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? He's saying, listen, you may have been circumcised on the eighth day according to the law, and you may go to the temple all the time. Your hearts are uncircumcised. You are a Gentile in your hearts and ears. Which of the prophets did your fathers not kill? They got a little upset. They didn't like that his message didn't have three clear points. He stoned him to death. They went into a rage. Don't tell us we don't know how to get God. We've got a system of how to get God. Don't tell us God's not in our temple. The temple means everything to us. Look at verse 56. Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their uncircumcised ears. Okay, I added that part. They rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city. They stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Stephen says this, and don't think that Saul forgot his sermon. Jesus is not in your religion. He's not there. Where is he? Oh, I see him. I see him. He's by the hand of the Father. Paul is going to write later in the book of Hebrews. I know. Paul wrote Hebrews. He stands at the right hand of the Father as your advocate. What's it like to say that, knowing you stood by a guy martyred, looking at Christ by the throne of God as an advocate? That's somebody who believes in good news. The mystery is Gentiles are in. There's no temple, there's no priest, there's no law, there's no old covenant. It's all in Jesus because in Jesus the law is fulfilled. In Jesus he stands as our priest. In Christ the people of God are his temple. And now we have a new covenant in his blood that says you believe? Yes, you're righteous. Fantastic covenant. There's never been one better. 
It's not a new plan, but this is the plan that was being unveiled over time. Jesus fulfilled everything in the Old Testament in ways nobody expected. Jesus took the whole law and fulfilled it on the cross. Jesus took the whole law and fulfilled it through his blood. And Paul's, now Paul's job as a minister of the gospel was to hunt down elitism that he saw in the church and destroy it. Because he says, someone who tries to draw a line in the sand over the good guys and the bad guys does not know the gospel. Last verse we're going to turn to, Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. You've read it before. Peter came to Antioch, and I opposed him to his face. He stood condemned. Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Peter's hanging with the Gentiles. Pass the ham and bacon, please. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. Shrimp cocktail? No thanks. All the rest of the Jews also acted hypocritically. Well, we would never eat ham and bacon or in the same house as those cootie-filled Gentiles. Paul, when I saw their conduct was not in step with the gospel, I said to Peter in front of everybody, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Listen, buddy, you saw Christ crucified. Get over yourself. He didn't pull any punches. He hunted down elitism and exclusivism in the church like a rabid dog. And he told the good news over and over again. There is no division line. There's righteous and those who need Christ to become righteous. That's it. Peter missed the gospel. But the gospel overcomes religious elitism. It overcomes religious power. It overcomes religious systems. Because the only way we get righteous is in Christ. And once you do that, there's no power. There's no exclusions. There's no exclusivity. He went from Jewish protector to Gentile brother. He would go to prison for the Gentiles. He would get up in Peter's face for the Gentiles. As soon as somebody drew a line in the sand and said, you're there, I'm here, Peter, or I should say Paul, was all over it. The gospel says that line does not exist. Would you go to jail for Jesus? I think, I think most of us are like, well, I'd like to think I would. Somebody came in here, you have to go to jail if you don't deny Christ. We like, I mean, all of us are, are weak. Do they have cable? Um, fair question. Paul would go to jail for Jesus, but it's worse than that. This is how we have to ask it, I think, to get this Gentile issue under our head. Would you go to jail so an unemployed meth addict could love Jesus? You say, you know what, we're not going to let the meth addicts love Jesus because they're causing problems, they steal, they're violent. Would you go to jail and break the law so they could worship Christ? Because that's what it was like to, for the Jews and the Gentiles. Paul says, I'm not going to just go to jail for Jesus. I would go to jail so my, my Gentile brothers can love Christ. I mean, it's worth it. Do we even want unemployed meth addicts coming in here on Sunday? I mean, much less go to jail for them. I mean, can't we put them in the fireside room and they can watch the video, right? Something to think about. Would we give up power for Jesus? This is really important as Christians as we think of how we glorify God by engaging in the culture around us. Are we willing to give up power for Jesus? 
What our culture needs is good news, not good clean living. As Christians, broadly, we want so badly to convince the world to live the way we think they ought to live. There's a reason to tell people great ways and healthy ways of living. I'm not talking about that. But you know, there's really, really good behaved people not saved. They don't need to be told how to clean, live clean. What do they need to hear? Good news. Christ saves sinners. But we don't want to give up our power. We want to grasp onto this. We've got to tell our culture how it's supposed to be. We've got to tell our culture who died for them. Telling the culture around us how they're supposed to live will not save them from hell. Worse, it convinces people they're not going and then they won't hear you tell them the gospel. Would we give up our preferences, the things we appreciate and think about when it comes to gathering together as a body of believers or approaching the world around us? Sometimes we would. We'd say, you know what? I don't like how things are going sometimes. Greg talks a little bit long. It's too warm in the worship center. I don't know, whatever your issue is today. Everybody has different things, different days. Say, you know what? I'm not going to tell anybody except those two people. I'll tell them not to tell anybody, so that way it'll be fine. And, and Paul says this, no, 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 what I'm going to do is I'm not only going to not decide that it's got to be my way or the highway, I'm going to hunt down dividing lines like a dog, like, a, like I'm going after, like I'm a rabid dog. You say, say I see somebody saying this is the way it's got to be. You say, I'm, gonna, I'm all over that. I'm not even going to let it slide. You know, things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Paul says, thank goodness there's a gospel so we don't have to worry about it. Stop drawing lines in the sand. Paul does not keep peace with power players and influencers. He didn't do that with the Jews. He didn't even do it in the first century church. Paul does not keep peace with power players and influencers. Paul says this, peace is for Gentile Jesus lovers. That's who he's going to have peace with. All right, a couple of thoughts. We'll close with this. Are you ready? From prison filler to prison dweller. This is Paul saying, from uh, I'm better, we say we no longer are going to uh, understand ourselves as I'm better than someone else because I behave better or my life is better. We need to look at people around us and say, either they're in Christ, which means they're what? Righteous, or they're not in Christ, so let's tell them about Jesus so they can be what? Righteous. Those are our options. From religious power to gospel teller, we're going to switch from th- saying, you know, I want things my way. I want things my way in the culture around me. I know how life ought to be lived, and I want the rest of the culture to finally get on, on, the, on board with this because I know how righteousness should be lived in the culture around me. I'm going to get off that train and say, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I want my culture to hear the good news. Jesus saves sinners. Would it benefit our culture more that they finally live the way you want them to live or the fact that they look forward to heaven one day? Let's tell them the good news. And finally, Paul goes from being a Jewish protector to a Jewish brother. We need to change our hearts by the power of the Spirit instead of just saying, you know what, I'm okay with Christians who are like, not like me. I'm okay with some Christians who are out there that are really different from me. Maybe they express their love for Christ differently. Maybe they sing and worship differently. Maybe they come from a different ethnic background than me. That's great. It'd be even better if they worshiped at their own church. 
We're going to change that in our hearts by the Spirit. Say, you know what? No, I will suffer to death to be an advocate for Jesus' lovers not like me. That's what Paul is saying to his Gentile brothers. You're not like me. I wasn't raised like you. I don't know. I'm gonna, I would be willing to suffer that you could be a Jesus worshiper and experience the righteousness of Christ the way you do. That's good news. 